no technology is really going to solve what is a regulatory and market structure problem more than anything else. Welcome to episode 371 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. When large internet access companies begin discussing advances in technologies they're developing, it's important to maintain perspective and not get swept away by the inevitable hype. Over the past two years or so, 5G has been on everyone's mind and big providers haven't done anything to curb unrealistic expectations. Recently, we released our Pocket Guide to 5G Hype to help manage some of the claims that have been floating around that are a little overblown. Shortly after the release of the Pocket Guide, this week's guest, Sasha Segan from PC Mag, contacted us to let us know that he disagreed with some of the content of our resource. Since Sasha has been covering mobile technology for what Chris describes as forever, we wanted to bring him on the podcast to explain what he disagrees with and why. In this interesting discussion, Sasha provides some great education on the intricacies of 5G, millimeter waves, and the technology and marketing campaign surrounding them. He and Christopher also talk about fiber deployment and what it will take to bring high-quality connectivity to all of the U.S. Now here's Christopher and Sasha Segan from PC Mag. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. Today I'm talking to a very notable guest, Sasha Sagan, PC Mag Lead Mobile Analyst. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Hi. You know, I, we were talking for a minute and I realized I've read your name a million times, but did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, it's actually Sasha Segan, uh, okay. but a lot of people pronounce it uh, the other way because they think of Carl Sagan, the astronomer, oh. and it kind of connects. And I yeah. was thinking of Peter Sagan, the famous bicyclist. Um, I just finished the Tour de France, you know, a week or two ago. So, <laughs> um, anyway, you you are someone that's been around. I mean, I, so a little bit of context. I've been working in municipal broadband for twelve years. People think of me as someone who's been around since the beginning of time. I think because many of them have only been in it for a few years. Um, when I got started in this, you were someone that I thought of had been around forever. And I think that's because you've been around forever. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into this? Yeah, so I've been a technology journalist since uh, 1997. Uh, I've been online pretty much forever. And um, when and, and I've always been interested in wireless. Um, I I reported on things like Ricochet, which was this really primitive, interesting peer-to-peer -peer wireless internet uh, system in the late 90s, um, and just how this, how wireless technologies are transforming our society, transforming our minds, transforming the way we work, the way we live, the way we socialize. So come around uh, 2004... PC Mag, which was at the time PC Magazine, was hiring their first dedicated writer on smartphones. And I had already <laughs> been freelancing a bit for PC Mag before then. Those are Nokia, I'm guessing, right? I mean, back in those days? Yeah, there was some Nokia Symbian, but actually the big players at the time were Palm and Microsoft. Okay. It was, uh, it was Trios, if you remember those, yes, yeah. and uh, Microsoft Pocket PC. Okay, And so I thought, uh, yeah, this would be a great uh, growing new area of computing to get into that's probably going to change the world. And so I started there uh, 15 years ago, 
And lo and behold, it did change the world. And so I got to see the first iPhone and what that did. I got to see Android. I got to do the 2G to 3G transition, 3G to 4G, now 4G to 5G. And you could say that uh, mobile kind of does dominate how people do computing in the world as a whole in 2019. Right. That actually gives me the opportunity to reuse a joke that I I love, which is that uh, makes you OG. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually had that as part of my Twitter bio at one point. Oh, nice. I'm glad I'm not the only one who saw the... Uh, <laughs> I, I used that just at random in a conference and it killed. It was the best laugh line I've ever had. So it's etched permanently in my memory. <laughs> um, so you, I think, saw a tweet that uh, we put out about uh, 5G. Uh, we put out something called uh, a fact sheet, a fa- uh, 5G hype pocket guide. And I suspect it's because Gigi Sohn had retweeted it and and, and you saw it and you called us out on some factual, um, you know, I would say, I don't know if I'd say errors, but I'd say we glossed over key details in some ways that I agree with your criticism. I think it's legitimate and we're going to talk about um, about that. But um, you, you know, you came back with some very um, powerful insights about what you really expect to see and some of the technology issues. And so um, we're going to talk 5G. We're going to start by talking about um, the, the fact sheet, I think, to try to get at some of these issues, which, you know, there's a number of engineers who listen to this show, and I'm sure that they cringe every time I simplify anything, which <laughs> is something I, I frequently do for um, some in the audience. But let me ask you this, and, and I think um, this is actually where I really appreciate that you, um, you know, reached out on, on Twitter to say, because you actually read it. And I think a lot of people, you know, look at the headlines and then move on with their lives. And let me just ask if you would agree with the sort of the bolded text, which is that we still need wires, maybe not 100% of the time, but I think you would agree with that, right? Oh, no, we absolutely do need wires. Right. Um, wired broadband has so much more capacity even than the best 5G system. It's so much more reliable. It is, I mean, we use the phrase backbone in the internet world, and wired broadband is the backbone of all networking and will continue to be the backbone for the foreseeable future. 5G relies on fiber intensely. You can't have 5G without extensive widespread fiber fiber. So these are two technologies that uh, 5G is going to be able to reach some places where fiber can't reach because of physical or economic reasons. And at the same time, 5G is not going to be able to exist without fiber supplying the the basic backbone, the big pipe that goes into the 5G radios. I agree. I would actually, let me ask you if I would push in on something you just said regarding fiber not going places. When you make that statement, I think you're probably thinking of a horizon of five to 10 years. You know, I think if we think longer than that, I expect that we will see fiber eventually reaching everywhere as long as we don't live in a horrible hellscape from climate change, you know, um, changes and things like that. Yeah, I somewhat disagree because I do think there are two areas where there are real problems uh, installing fiber, and they aren't technical problems. Uh, They're in general economic and political problems that I don't see any time horizon necessarily curing. And one of them is truly rural installation. Mm -hmm. And that's a situation where it just costs a lot of money to build it out. The companies involved do not see the ROI. They don't see the return on investment because the structure of our economy is about short-term return. They don't see short-term return in laying fiber way out into the farmlands. I don't see that necessarily changing 
And then the other area is actually in uh, some urban areas, the situation with uh, property ownership and who can give rights of way across certain properties, who can allow for digging under streets, who can allow for access to conduits, uh, can often be so complicated and so politically fraught and so economically fraught that uh, no change in the fiber technology is necessarily going to fix that. You literally have to go uh, around the outside, and that's where wireless may come in to help solve that problem. Um, without getting lost in this rabbit hole, I think that's why – in fact, I actually think we'll see fiber – um, to almost every rural household before we'll see it in every urban area. I think the cable monopolies and that right-of-way issue will be a challenge. Um, I'll send you our rural fiber map. Um, I think that um, you may be interested in in checking out how far the rural fiber has already gotten from the co-ops. Um, but I, I do want to move on to 5G won't fix the broadband market. That was another one of our bolded ones. Um, 5G won't solve the digital divide. And then there's no 5G race. So with, with our bold headlines, any quibbles? So... 5G will 5G will help the broadband market. Okay. The problem with the broadband market once again is more economic than it is technical. If we had for instance uh common carrier regulations on uh fiber, if we had a requirement for unbundling, if we had uh what is it? Uh, UNEP the way right. we had in the late 90s unbundled network element platform. Platform, thank you. Um, and that's actually what they have in the UK. And uh, so in the UK, they have, uh, as far as I know, two main fiber providers, but there's a requirement for UNEP. And so as a result, uh, your average household has uh, seven or eight different choices of competitive internet provider running on those fiber providers. And that creates a really vigorous, competitive, interesting, powerful market there that uh, really helps UK internet consumers. Uh, the problem we have in the US is there's there's 15% of the population, that 15% rural population, who are going to say the problem is that we don't have wires going to our going to our vicinities. Mm-hmm. But for the other 85% of the population, the problem is not that there aren't wires. The problem is that the wires are owned by powerful monopoly companies who absolutely control them and uh, don't let anyone else play. Right. Their control over their wires is is only dwarfed by their control over Washington, D.C., it feels like. Exactly. Exactly. And so, once again, using this idea of going around the outside of that monopoly, the wireless carriers are going to start distributing uh, internet access via 5G. In uh, some metro areas, probably mid – like they'll say later this year, but it's really mid-2020, and it'll, it'll grow beyond that. And it's not going to be a panacea because they are just introducing one or two more players – that, uh, once again, aren't common carriers, don't allow for a wide variety of uh, virtual network packages. And in wired broadband, where you've seen one or two more players enter, like places where Fios competes with cable, Mm -hmm. it's been a little better, but it hasn't been transformative. And I think as we see Verizon and Merge Sprint T-Mobile come in with 5G uh, broadband offerings, it's going to be a little better. But 
I don't think it's necessarily going to be transformative because you really do need three, preferably four players in a place offering similar options to get that uh, kind of competitive ferment that you really need to break things open. So what I'm what I'm expecting, and I agree with everything that you just said, is a dynamic that's not unlike the third pipe discussion we had with Wi-Fi 15 years ago. Um, and it's when I look back at that, which actually was a little bit before my time, but I've talked with a lot of people who who you know are very active in that. One of them, friend of the show, uh, Travis Carter, runs US Internet uh, for people who listen to the show regularly. Drink um, because <laughs> you know he is a he's a very pithy way of saying a lot of things. One of the things I think about is is that uh, the way wireless works really well, perhaps in places like Sacramento, certainly in places like Tucson. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been through Sacramento. I don't remember exactly the level of, of trees and things like that. But I'll tell you here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, you know, I think Wi-Fi citywide was, was really failed from two major issues. One was, um, was speed. You know, it just could not deliver the speed to the home. And I think that this 5G crushes that. It's going to be amazing speed. But the second piece is reliability. And I think, and I'm my concern is is that people will be excited about it, but as soon as they're watching, you know, whether it's a, a the MLS championship, the Super Bowl, or whatever, and, and their their internet connection's wavering because the wind's mm-hmm. blowing the wrong direction, they're going to mm-hmm. go right back to cable. That's that's kind of what I'm expecting. Yeah, and uh, that has been my like I've been very disappointed so far in a lot of the performance aspects of the first wave millimeter wave 5G devices. Um, I feel like the carriers and the manufacturers have made a lot of promises about millimeter wave. Um, I don't believe that those promises have played out on any axis. They (laughs) promised 1,200 to 3,000 foot radiuses. I've seen 600 foot radiuses. Uh, They promised um, certain levels of performance. I've seen devices that overheat constantly. Um, They've promised uh, beam forming to uh, get through windows, if not walls. Um, I still see 60 to 70% signal loss through Windows. So I'm very, very frustrated with what I've seen there so far. But can we go to my biggest quibble with your fact sheet? Sure, let's do it. So my biggest quibble with your fact sheet, and this is something that a lot of people do around the country, is they say 5G when they mean millimeter wave, and they say millimeter wave when they mean 5G. And those two (laughs) things are not actually the same. So what do we mean when we say millimeter wave? Just to be very clear as we get into this. What are we talking about when we talk about millimeter wave? Yes, specifically. When we're talking about millimeter wave, uh, we're talking about a new, very high-speed short-range, high-frequency network technology that is going to require thousands of new small cell sites, probably on lampposts and the sides of buildings, placed every either every 1,200 feet or every 2,400 feet, depending on who you believe, mm-hmm. that is uh, easily capable of multi-gigabit speeds, but has trouble with rain, trouble with trees, trouble with windows. And what's the frequency range here? The millimeter wave in the U.S. tends to be from 24 gigahertz mm-hmm. up right now into the high 30s. And it can really be anywhere from, I think the millime- bands considered millimeter wave are anywhere from about 8-ish um, up to about 100. But we're really talking the 20s and 30s of gigahertz in the sure. U.S. now. And so this, this I think, is where... I told you I'd set a little bit of context for um, us. And let me ask you one more question before I I talk a little bit about the context that we were thinking of when we released the fact sheet. Mm -hmm. And 
my understanding is if we're talking about the the super fast speeds that we're talking about for 5G, which generally means, let's just say, competitive with and better than modern cable in urban areas. So we're talking about multiple hundreds of megabits and gigabit mm-hmm. plus um, that that's only millimeter waves. There is no, no other way. Okay. So no, that's, that's so not there you true. Go. So, okay. So correct me then, because that is my understanding. Okay. It's not true. That is just about the way that the FCC has decided to assign frequencies in the US. A hertz is a hertz. A millimeter <laughs> okay. wave hertz can transfer the same amount of data as any other hertz on the spectrum. The issue is that there were large blocks of unassigned frequencies up in millimeter wave because it was considered trash bandwidth that no one could properly use. And so the FCC, because it was open and unused, the FCC found that really easy to auction. And the carriers said, okay, we're going to start installing 5G on here. But in Europe, for instance, um, you're seeing 5G start to uh, deploy on uh, what's called the mid-bands, which in Europe are typically between uh, 3 and 6 gigahertz. Okay, and this is something David Burstein also just um, jumped on Twitter on Friday or Saturday to point out um, yeah. another. Um, he also had this same um, issue with me. Yeah, so in Europe and, uh, and South Korea, actually, the regulators opened up several hundred megahertz of spectrum between three and six gigahertz. Um, now, this spectrum has similar propagation to existing uh, cellular frequencies. Uh, it has definitely similar window penetration capabilities okay wall penetration capabilities. It's like the high bands of the cellular network, but it's definitely much easier to work with than millimeter wave. And you see carriers like uh, Sunrise in Switzerland offering uh, unlimited uh, home internet packages for uh, 40, 50 euros a month on this network with speeds of between 300 and 500 megabits a second, which is not bad at all. And when you consider that uh, the vast majority of people signing up for cable or even fiber are signing up for packages that are capped at either 100 or 300, they're not buying those expensive gigabit packages. That is definitely competitive. The problem is the U.S. government did not open up enough of these uh, mid-band frequencies here in the U.S. to make that a uh, viable nationwide business plan. And okay. I'm very frustrated with the FCC for doing that. Let me ask you a quick question about the technology. Is this premised in some sense on having a lower penetration? Because this is, I think, one of the larger questions about wireless that I, I worry about, particularly fixed wireless in the U.S., is that there's a sense that you can deliver a lot, but it's premised on not having a lot of penetration, you know, some using, the, using up the spectrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think that's something that hasn't been tested yet. Okay. The carriers all promise it'll be fine, but we have not seen, because we haven't seen any real widespread uh, millimeter wave consumer premise equipment for home broadband yet here in the U.S., uh, nobody's really mm-hmm. been able to test that. Maybe it's a concern, maybe it's not a concern. There is a feature in 5G which can really help here which hasn't been implemented yet, which is called network slicing. Um, Network slicing, which is coming probably late next year, lets a 5G network segregate bandwidth for certain kinds of users. So uh, the 5G network could say, for instance, home users get guaranteed bandwidth first, and all of the cell phones Mm -hmm. on the street get what's left over. 
And uh, that'll definitely help. Uh, Verizon plans to have a homogenous mixed-use 5G network where it's the same radios serving both homes and mobile users. And they need that network slicing so that they can guarantee uh, a certain QoS, quality of service, to the homes while there are crowds of mobile users wandering in and out. And they're not going to have that QoS until network slicing happens. Okay. So that's very helpful. So if if I was to sum up, our criticism of 5G is overly broad and focused on not so much the technology, but a, a combination of the political decisions that have been made in the U.S., um, in which we are not likely to see those mid-band spectrums anytime soon. Um, but the, if they were available, we could see this very high quality speed without it being... Okay, so device. wait, wait, though. Because uh, one of the things that Gigi and uh, me and, most importantly, Jessica Rosenworcel are pushing mm-hmm. for heavily is that there is the possibility of opening up, opening up a lot of mid-band spectrum in the U.S. It's called C-band. C-band. Right. I'm signed on to those comments. Okay, actually. there we go. <laughs> so C-band runs from 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz. It, that makes it uh, 500 megahertz, right? And uh, 500 mm-hmm. megahertz uh, divided between what's inevitably going to be three wireless carriers in the U.S. at the end of all this gets uh, each of the wireless carriers a pretty decent chunk there. They can carry they can carry some serious traffic on there. Unfortunately, C-band is currently occupied by a constellation of uh, foreign satellite firms and the U.S. Navy, and figuring out how to free up C-band and whether the satellite firms should just be paid off out of the public purse or whether some of the spectrum should be confiscated or whether there should be an auction or whether companies should be able to just buy it from the satellite firms um, and uh, how much the military should be required to to give up. That is all in discussion right now. I think those are the comments you're following, right? That's right. Michael Calabrese at uh, New America, as well as Public Knowledge, are two of the places that I think people could go to learn more about them. I, they've, um, they've been major um, commenters and, and focused on that. Um, so very good point. Um, now I want to I want to talk a little bit about what about five G on even lower spectrum, which is what we're expecting to see from um, Sprint for as long as it's as as it's around. Um, you seem to not expect it uh, one way or another to be around much longer in its current form. And then um, T Mobile, which is to say that I think in coming years uh, we will see people in rural areas um, having phones that say five G on them, and but probably not experiencing what they would experience if they took those same phones into a major urban area. Right. So as I said earlier, a hertz is a hertz, right? And uh, T-Mobile intends on implementing 5G on uh, 30 megahertz sections of their 600 megahertz uh, spectrum. Now, 600 megahertz is very low band. Uh, It's old antenna TV channels. So it's got great penetration. It goes for miles and miles and miles. It's terrific for rural but it's only 30 megahertz. And so you can't transfer that much data in an individual channel on this spectrum. It's not going to be that fast. It's going to be as fast as, you know, decent 4G. So why is T-Mobile even bothering is the question. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with other promises that 5G has down the road like promises involving latency, like promises involving uh, network slicing and guaranteed QoS. Um, There's a lot of stuff 
where these other features tend to combine into things like industrial automation and agricultural automation and massive numbers of agricultural sensors because 5G networks are able to address uh, millions of devices per square kilometer. And a lot of stuff which could be really good news for rural industry and rural business, um, rural health care, things like that, but don't at all address the question of home broadband. So let me ask you, if, if I'm on a farm, for instance, and in North Dakota, more than 70% of the landmass has fiber today, 50% of South Dakota that's settled with people has fiber. I have Wi-Fi set up intelligently through my fields and things like that. Do you actually see a purpose for these sorts of wireless technologies? Or would I just do everything using, you know, like Wi-Fi and presumably at a lower cost than having to pay um, the wireless providers. One of the things people are talking about with rural 5G um, is uh, the future of private networks. And uh, with a private network, you would, as a farmer, license some of this bandwidth for your own use, where um, I was talking to, who was it? John Deere about this. And so this becomes a situation Mm -hmm. where you have, so you have fiber to the edge of your property, because you're a farmer, mm-hmm. and uh, you have the option of either setting up one 600 megahertz 5G tower on that fiber line at the edge of your property to manage all your you know, 25,000 agricultural sensors and fleet of uh, robotic, autonomously controlled uh, threshers, or you can grid it with 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi every 1,000 feet or so and have to manage all of those poles and all of those routers and all of those units and that whole mesh. And so there does become a trade-off of you're a lot more autonomous if you're using Wi-Fi, but the solution may be a lot administratively simpler using low-band 5G. Mm-hmm. Great. There's very few people like you that ask these questions of people who can answer them <laughs> without a lot of hand-waving and in generalities that aren't super helpful. Um, as we're running out of time, I wanted to note something that, that, that I think our conversation has covered well enough, and that's that you know we say that, that um, all the 5G um, and, uh, antennas would need to be connected mm-hmm. by fiber. Um, you know, we said that even though I'd previously interviewed Doug mm-hmm. Dawson, uh, a consultant who's very good, writes the Pots and Pans blog, and he had mentioned that he thinks the low Earth orbit satellites are going to be connecting a lot of these rural towers. Um, and so I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that. Although I would defend what I'm saying, and, and this is where the context comes in a little bit, I think, because you're providing very good context of of 5G from a technical perspective. When I think about the sales job that's been done on local elected officials, 5G, I'd say 5G maybe in quote marks, which is to say like super fast speeds that are going to be you know, allowing you to to do everything you want to do, um, no congestion, just you know, basically gigabit type speeds, and I and I would stand by that. I think, um, and actually, I think I'm going to amend the fact sheet to include this context explicitly so people understand it. Um, that even though that is 5G and it may hit some of the the technical specifications, it's kind of like 5G in the sense that you know, if you go back to I think it was 4G when T-Mobile came out with like with what they called 4G, but it was really just 3G with like one or two uh, bells and whistles on it. Um, tell me I'm wrong. Or am I, do you think that's pretty close to being accurate? What Verizon is installing right now 
is definitely a it's an order of magnitude faster than their 4G but it is so early and so they're use it feels like they're using us all for a public beta mm-hmm. it, it it doesn't <laughs> actually work in a lot of the ways they say it will work in the future and mm-hmm. and so it's different from when T-Mobile installed that fake 4G the technology wasn't even theoretically capable of being world changing. This technology is, but Verizon is nowhere near the actual practical capability of what they're promising. They are dramatically overpromising what they're able to deliver today. But if the, if there's if there's one thing that I want to bring home that I think that you and I can agree vigorously about and that I hope we back each other up on Twitter about a lot is that no technology is really going to solve what is a uh, regulatory and market structure problem more than anything else. That the the digital yes. divide is not going to be solved by a new wave. It's not going to be solved by a G. It's not going to be solved by uh, magic satellites in the sky when (laughs) the real issue is um, a lack of regulatory backbone, when the real issue is uh, small providers and community and municipal providers getting beaten down by unjust laws designed to maintain monopolies. Um, this uh, This is an economic structure problem, not a technological problem that we have in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. I'm totally with you on that. If you have, if you have a couple more minutes, I want to. There's one other piece that I feel like I don't know who else I'd turn to to get this answer. You you mentioned that 5G plans don't have caps, um, and and I have to admit I didn't do as much research on this as I probably should have. In, in fact, checking it, my expectation was was that. You know, caps are fundamentally an irrational way of dealing with congestion anyway. I think caps are mostly just about padding the revenue. And so in my mind, of course, it's going to have caps because Verizon and AT&T want to figure out how to pull money out of bandwidth hogs like you and me. So I assume they would have caps, but you're saying that uh, they don't have caps. I mean, at the moment, they don't. The question is what happens when people start using a terabyte a month. And even there, you see the cable and fiber providers are putting in caps like you've been following the whole comcast saga so yes uh will there be caps but will the caps look more like the cable company caps than the cell phone caps that might be one way to look at it Mm -hmm. there's you know definitely every network has limited capacity uh one advantage that fiber carriers have of course is they can pull another line if they need to or potentially even access additional light waves within their right, existing lines right. too. With uh, wireless carriers, you either have to uh, wait for better order modulation to be available or you have to buy more spectrum. So there's definitely uh, – it's definitely easier to congest wireless than it is to congest fiber. But yes. right now, it's looking like these the, the high-frequency 5G systems have capacities similar to cable. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been – it's been great, and, I, and I'm really just glad to have a high-level conversation uh, with someone that's been following this so closely. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me here. That was Christopher and Sasha Segan from PC Mag. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. 
You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of the initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support and any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 371 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.